Hello, welcome everyone to Reason for Hope. We're glad you're joining us today for another hour of your questions on the Bible. That's what Reason for Hope is all about. Your questions guide our program for the most part here. You can send your questions in through multiple online platforms where we're streaming live today. I'll go over those in a moment just so you have options and ways you can join us and send us your questions. But we have guests here who love the Word, love the Lord, and they love to help you with your Bible questions. So if you have an honest and sincere Bible question, maybe a verse that you've come across in your reading and you're like, what on earth does that mean? How does that apply to my life? Maybe you're going through something, you'd like a bit of biblical guidance on that. What does the Bible say about your circumstances? Maybe even other religions and worldviews and how they relate to uh, what's in the Bible, uh, what Jesus taught, etc. Anything along those lines, again, as long as it's an honest question, you're more than welcome to send that in. My name's Dave Robson, I'm your host. Today, I'll be fielding those questions as they come in through our multiple platforms and throwing them out here to our guests, which are Pastor Scott Richards, who's That's the me. senior pastor here at Calvary Christian <laughs> Fellowship of Tucson, where we're streaming from. Good to see you today. Good to be seen. Thanks great, for being with us. Great to be here. Yeah. Yeah, lots of fun things to talk about today. Oh, yes, you often give us an update, especially right now, things going on in Israel and the Middle East. Um, so we are... We will get into that in just a moment. Also, Pastor Sean Richards, how are you doing? I can see the fear in your eyes. So <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just say hello. Yes, I'm well. <laughs> Whew, that, was a, that was an easy one. Good. Well, thank you, <laughs> thank you both for being here. We are glad you're here. Thank you for your, your time and your, your faithfulness with this ministry over, what, over 20 years now. Way beyond that, you've been doing this start as a radio show, and now we stream live with video. Um, so we're glad for you as well that you're, you're joining us. And like I say, you uh, can send in your questions and that. We never know where it's going to go, whatever's on your heart to ask. But as I mentioned, A Reason for Hope is a um, live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Um, here in Tucson, Arizona. If you are in uh, Tucson, Arizona, looking for somewhere to worship the Lord, you're welcome to come check out our church here, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We're right near uh, Prince and I-10 on the west side of the freeway. So we, we teach the word. Of course, we worship together, all kinds of groups and things going on, events. So if you are uh, looking for somewhere, you're welcome to come and see what we're all about. CalvaryChristianFellowship.com is our website. You can get more information there. Uh, if that watch live tab, if you click on that, that will take you to our live page. Um, or if you type into your browser ccftucson.online.church that will take you directly there ccftucson.online.church uh, we're streaming there you can sign in with a username and send your question in when we're offline you'll see a schedule of upcoming events and a countdown to our next show as well we are on facebook if you use the facebook platform facebook.com slash ccftucson or just look for calvary christian fellowship of tucson there don't forget to like and share we'd appreciate that uh, but I'll be checking the comments as well for your questions. That's another way you can get your question to us. We have an app for your mobile device. We even have a dude who takes care of it. Uh, Adrian, as you know, <laughs> one of the other hosts. He is a dude. He is a dude. He is a dude. Very talented dude. <laughs> yeah. Um, that takes care of our app and the website and keeps the content there coming. So there's lots of goodies on our uh, app, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And you can watch us live uh, through there as well on your mobile device. We have a channel on Roku and Apple TV as well um, go to your channel store look for calvary christian fellowship tucson and you can watch us on your big screen how exciting uh, we're live on youtube as well a reason for hope is the name of our channel look for a reason for hope on youtube or youtube.com 
uh, slash at a reason for hope. The four is the number four there. And uh, you can watch us live there. And of course, send a question through the comments, through the chat there. Um, if you go to that live tab on YouTube, that's a handy resource. Anytime we've been live, you'll see archive videos there. So if you missed anything or want to recap something, it's right there for you. We upload other content as well, questions of the week and things like that. Pastor Scott is on Twitter or X, as it's been called these days, Scott R4H. Look for him, Scott Richards, Scott R4H. And uh, he posts uh, daily, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Things uh, going on in the world, his commentary on that, uh, especially as it pertains to you know, uh, the word and biblical prophecy end times, those kind of things. So follow along with uh, Scott if you're on Twitter or X, Scott R4H. Um, if you're on the Rumble platform, um, we uh, post videos there. We're not live on Rumble, but it's a reason for Hope Bible Q&A. Uh, you can find us there as well. And then questionsforhope at gmail.com is our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. You're welcome to send your question there, especially if you're listening to us on the radio. Keep in mind that you're listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded. We're not live on the radio, so we're glad you're tuning in on Reach Radio or one of the other radio affiliates. But uh, you are a day late, unfortunately, but you can send your question uh, through that email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com and we'll be receiving those and maybe get to that on our next show uh, I think that's about it I think I covered all the housekeeping we always like to pause and pray because we we acknowledge we're handling God's word we want to give you the most accurate answer we can from his word so why don't we pray Sean would you like to pray for us today happy to that'd be great Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. I'm going to invite you to be here as well. Speak to your people and equip us to not only share your word, but your heart with your people. Thank you that we have the privilege of being not only gathered here, but the ability to freely and accurately, I hope, relate your word to people that want to do the same. See that we're all found faithful with the ministries you've called us to be a part of. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sean. Well, what is going on that you can update us <laughs> with? Well, on nothing, a personal level, uh, some people uh, have pointed out that I've got a little deal on my lip here. Yeah. <laughs> this is not the remnants of a hostess cupcake. Uh, rather, this is something that happened to me last night. Did you uh, get in a fight again? Four in the morning. I did. Uh, four in the morning. Uh, heard uh, our cat come walking into our bedroom, barely awake. Jumped up on the bed. Usually jumps up on my chest, but this time she missed and landed on my face and gashed my lip. <laughs> and the cat who did that, Precious, she has precious. made not only one, but three separate appearances on A Reason for Hope when we were still in the in I remember studio. those days. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, we don't call her Precious, we call her Prey, P-R-E-Y, so she I was Prey She yes, preys on faces, so, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I wasn't sure this if it is was... as good as I can do under the circumstances. Well, that's okay. No, it is not some uh, example of poor manners. I don't know if it was a blueberry or what, but yeah. Dave, Dave leaned over to me during the prayer and says, you got something on your lip. <laughs> you know, it's not going anywhere. Yeah, it's going to make you look, make you look kind of rugged, you know? That's it. People might listen up even more. Kind of like piratey oh, almost. This dude's serious. He's yeah. ready to throw down. Yeah, piratey. Uh, yeah. It's like all the flower <laughs> ears. Never get in a fight with those kind of guys. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Always check. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we well, take you as you are yes. and love you such, too. <laughs> well, that's a beautiful thing, <laughs> isn't it? Well, uh, yeah, we do have uh, quite a bit uh, going on as far as uh, matters of prophetic significance are concerned. Uh, probably uh, one of the uh, most uh, interesting developments is outside of Israel, but we'll get to that uh, in just a moment. 
couple of uh, developments inside of Israel that we want to uh, keep you uh, up and appraised on. Uh, Israel and uh, the terrorists of Hamas, uh, you may have heard in the news, uh, Israel, through the intermediaries in uh, the nation of Qatar, had offered the proposal for a ceasefire. Uh, the proposal was a one-month ceasefire, uh, which uh, would also require, uh, in exchange, uh, Gaza having their leadership uh, leave uh, the territory, I should say Hamas, leave, leaving the territory. And uh, it would uh, also result in the uh, release of nearly 1,000 uh, Hamas-oriented prisoners from Israeli jails in exchange for the release of the hostages. Well, uh, that was a very generous offer because if Israel backed out for a month, uh, we know what would happen. Uh, Hamas would uh, retrench and resupply, and uh, we'd have to do this thing all over again. And Israel would find themselves in a very difficult position politically in that it's a lot easier to continue a, an operation like this than to start it and stop it again in the court of world opinion. Uh, so uh, literally... Uh, nothing to lose, everything to gain. Uh, but uh, as I think it was uh, Golda Meir who once famously quoted, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity and flat out turned this down. Israel has responded by upping the uh, pace of attacks. They destroyed in central Gaza today one tunnel segment that was over a kilometer, six-tenths of a mile long in one fell, fell swoop. We also sadly uh, got news that 21 IDF soldiers uh, were killed when uh, they were about the business of setting the charges to destroy a terror tunnel. Unbeknownst to them, Hamas had uh, placed uh, booby traps, IEDs, improvised explosive devices in uh, the uh, building adjacent to the uh, terror tunnel that these IDF soldiers were working on. They blew it up and took out 21 IDF soldiers. It was really a major mm. uh, blow for Israel to uh, encounter. Uh, the uh, Houthi rebels uh, are uh, continuing apace, but uh, the United States and its allies are increasing uh, their attacks on the Houthi rebels. And uh, it's uh, kind of an interesting perspective in the Jerusalem Post today. Uh, there was a fascinating uh, bit of analysis with this headline. Iran considering next steps against Israel, United States amid strikes. Escalation in Syria, Iraq, and the Red Sea in which Iran may suffer more losses than it can easily replace could be a challenge for Iran in the near term. Well, over the weekend, Iran was very active, uh, increasing its threats to Israel and U.S. forces. Iranian proxies in Iraq used ballistic missiles to attack the al-Assad air base in Iraq, which is staffed by U.S. troops. Uh, several U.S. personnel were wounded because of that attack. Uh, again, uh, most of the missiles were intercepted by the base's air defense system, but uh, again, a number of uh, U.S. personnel are undergoing evaluation for traumatic brain injuries, that according to CENTCOM. Uh, again, Iran was busy in other regions because it lo suffered losses in Syria while it was plotting and carrying out its attacks in Iraq. Several members of the Iranian Iranian Republican Guard Corps units uh, were killed in Damascus. Uh, again, some of these were senior IRGC members, uh, one of which, uh, the Ayatollah Ali Khomeini, led prayers at his funeral. 
Uh, Yemen, things are not going well uh, for the Houthis at this point. They continue to target ships, but CENTCOM conducted an airstrike against a Houthi anti-ship missile that was aimed in the Gulf of Aden, was prepared to launch. Uh, again, it uh, cut off a threat to a merchant ship and U.S. Navy ships in the region, and uh, they were able to strike uh, the place where the missile was launched in self-defense. So uh, definitely not a positive for Iran. Again, that day, 20 Iranian-backed Hezbollah members uh, continued to threaten Israel, but uh, Israel struck terrorist infrastructure and uh, IDF tanks fired in an area uh, that removed a threat to one of the key Israel bases, a place called Mount Dove. So uh, weighing all of these incidents, uh, we talk about Israel being between a rock and a hard place because they're surrounded uh, by potential enemies. But what often fails to go into the analysis is we may be seeing Iran uh, stretching themselves a bit too thin. Uh, they've spent all of these years building up these militias and uh, terrorist proxies, but can they continue to operate in light of uh, these losses. The article in the Jerusalem Post said Iran has under other interests as well. It recently launched a satellite into orbit, which gives them the ability to have ICBM technology. Iranian media focuses on internal disagreements within Israel's wartime cabinet. Uh, Tehran is closely monitoring Hamas's recent demands to see if it can keep Hamas in power in Gaza. But uh, again, Iran is having to weigh its next steps. Escalation in Syria, Iraq, and the Red Sea, in which Iran may suffer more losses than it can easily replace, could be a challenge for Iran in the long term. And I find that very heartening uh, because one of the things that uh, we discovered interacting with our good friend uh, Ronnie Simone is that uh, part of the strategy involved in Gaza right now. We see these pictures that are sent of Israel using air munitions to blow up terrorist uh, targets and terrorist groups and so on. But uh, the problem is every one of those is a munition that they will not be able to use, uh, I think, when, not if, they get into a major Donnybrook with Hezbollah in, in uh, I should say, in uh, uh, Lebanon. So uh, we look at Israel and we kind of wonder how they're going to uh, shake all this out. But Iran is finding themselves, well, kind of uh, diluting its resources as well. Uh, so it will be interesting to see if a weakened Iran becomes a uh, more tempting target uh, for more attacks within Iran, going for the head of the octopus rather than the tentacles and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, another very interesting uh, article that ran uh, in the Jerusalem Post uh, that I think is uh, pretty prophetically significant. This headline, Father Arrested After Son Bowed Down on the Temple Mount. <laughs> uh, well, on a break from serving in the reserves on the Gaza border, a rabbi named Abraham Yitzhak Pierman took his three kids on a visit to the Temple Mount. Well, uh, one of his uh, children was playing on the steps of the Temple Mount area and uh, uh, ended up laying down on one of the steps. He was immediately arrested by Israeli police, not the Waqfa, but the Israeli police arrested the father and the child on suspicion that the child had prayed on the Temple Mount. Mm. Now that's uh, kind of a double no-no, if you will, if you're familiar with what goes on with the Temple Mount. 
in that, uh, first of all, you have the wakfa. Sean and I have had direct uh, encounters with these uh, lovely uh, diplomats and purveyors of uh, Muslim hospitality up there. Very unsavory group uh, to interact with. Very, very mean-spirited. Don't want you there at all. Nothing they can do about it. So they just kind of boil and get frustrated and uh, hit couples with sticks for holding hands and things like this. Uh, so uh, the wakfa watch everybody that goes up onto the Temple Mount area like a hawk. Any semblance of an act of prayer, devotion on the Temple Mount, uh, they're going to probably be all over it. If they are not, uh, the Israeli uh, police will be all over you. Why? Well, for two reasons. Number one, Israel has assured Jordan, which controls the Temple Mount, that uh, they are committed to what they call the status quo agreements, that everything is going to stay in place just as it was at the end of the 73 war armistice. And that includes uh, Jordan being able to determine who and what goes on on the Temple Mount. Uh, the Jordanians have to be appeased, but the other people that have to be appeased are the ultra-Orthodox Jews, uh, because the ultra-Orthodox Jews don't want anyone praying on the Temple Mount for fear of, uh, perhaps uh, in a mistake, praying on the side of the ancient Holy of Holies in which only the high priest could pray. They would consider that to be blasphemy of the highest order. So you've got all this pressure on the Israeli police going on there. Interestingly enough, uh, we are told that uh, this man and his children were bailed out by a, an organization uh, that is committed to defending the rights of Jewish citizens to pray on their Temple Mount. Mm -hmm. Tom Nisani, the CEO of this organization, said the Israeli police on the Temple Mount really have no shame and are now resorting to detaining three-year-olds. It's important to remind the police at this time there is no law against praying or bowing on the Temple Mount. This organization supports the realization and application of full Israeli sovereignty on the Temple Mount full equal rights for Jews on the Temple Mount, and the restoration of the Temple Mount back to its natural status as the heart of a Jewish nation, a place of ascension, a place of longing aspiration, a central spiritual, religious, and national site where Jews can ascend freely, visit, and worship according to their website. So uh, again, praying at the Temple Mount uh, is considered illegal. Uh, this is uh, a uh, debate that is going on uh, within Israel, but it's going to be very interesting to see if um, the coalescing of Israel back together, putting aside their differences and so on as a result of what's gone on in Gaza and the, the atrocities of October 7th, uh, creates a groundswell of support for the idea of uh, moving towards rebuilding the Temple Mount. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that. Closer to home, uh, the question we often get asked on Bible prophecy is where is the United States in biblical prophecy? We give you uh, three basic alternatives. Number one, uh, the idea that the United States is not mentioned in biblical prophecy because we are absolutely devastated after the rapture. Uh, you know, again, estimating anywhere from 25 to 50 million uh, professing born-again believing Christians in the United States Imagine 50 million people suddenly vanish, the impact that would have. The second possibility is the United States has taken out in some kind of limited uh, war with another entity. Uh, the third possibility is that we just simply 
start to uh, fall apart and uh, decay and uh, lose the ability to be the 800-pound gorilla in things economic and military in the world. A couple of things happening right now that might indicate uh, that uh, we are moving in this direction. Uh, Yesterday, the Supreme Court uh, issued a ruling backing the Biden administration's uh, order for the state of Texas to cut down razor wire that is keeping illegal immigrants from uh, coming into the country at a couple of places along the Rio Grande River. Mm. Well, uh, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, today uh, sent in his National Guard uh, units to reinforce the razor wire at these particular places where the Biden administration was going to cut them down. Uh, One of the uh, reasons they say they're going to take out the razor wire is they don't believe that it deters uh, illegal aliens from coming into the country, which always raises the question in my mind, then why do we have it around prisons if it doesn't deter anybody from coming or going? I liked the uh, Babylon Bee article where it notes the National Guard have been forbidden by the president and his uh, administration from guarding the nation. Yeah, so uh, the, the, the interesting thing is this. Here you have uh, an administration backed up by the U.S. Supreme Court issuing an edict regarding uh, immigration policy, essentially, and a governor saying, hold your horses. We're not going to allow you to enforce this particular edict. Uh, This is probably one of uh, the most provocative moves that I've seen as far as disunity in the United States that I've seen in a long, long time. Uh, Will this continue? Uh, There are those who talk about the United States sort of being in a cold civil war, if you will. Obviously, there's no fighting going on at this point, aside from demonstrations and people burning down cities over the summer and things like this. But the, the interesting question that, uh, that we're going to have to wrestle with, I believe, is going to be what is going to happen when uh, the uh, orders from Washington are given and are not followed? Um, you know, it, it always reminds me of that classic scene from the movie The Hunt for Red October, uh, where the submarine captain Bart Mancuso famously said, the big problem with playing chicken is knowing when to flinch. So we've got a game of chicken going on between uh, the uh, government in Texas and the federal government in Washington, D.C., and how this all gets uh, shaken out is going to be very, very interesting. But uh, once again, we do not see uh, stability. We do not see strength being demonstrated uh, by the United States in these days, and things may just continue along that line. We may become uh, so disunified, uh, so split, with, especially with the hugely controversial elections coming up, uh, that uh, we are more interested in just trying to keep uh, the chewing gum and bailing wire holding this country together in place rather than imposing ourselves on the world. Maybe why the United States is not mentioned in biblical prophecy. We may in fact, uh, have had our day in the sun and now are starting to move into uh, serious decline. So Mm -hmm. we need to pray for those who are in leadership, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for the Israeli people, uh, pray uh, that justice is served, uh, pray that uh, the enemies of God's people are thwarted in their brutal and grisly attacks, Uh, pray for boldness for God's people to stand up in these days 
and to be able to see these things as a heads up that Jesus is coming soon and that we need to be about the business of sharing our faith. Mm. So uh, lots going on, very yeah. interesting stuff indeed. Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for keeping us posted on all those things. And yes, do be praying. Uh, we have some questions coming in. Thank you for that, everyone. If you guys are ready, we can jump on in. Question from Mike. Sorry we didn't get your question yesterday, but we could see you back with us. Restating your question, which is a great hack uh, to get to us. <laughs> Mike asks, can you help me understand the parable of the talents? Is the wicked servant a Christian who neglected his salvation or an unbeliever? Thanks. Thanks, Mike, for your question. Parable of the talents. Always the biggest problem with parables is they focus on the minutia of the story and they leave behind the punchline. Now, since I have not uh, passed my 30-year uh, tenure in ministry, I don't think I'm allowed to talk too much about the parables, so I'll designate that to my left, your right. But when it comes to the point of this parable, the best way to approach it is it could be applied that way, but that wasn't the point of the statement. Mm. So is it accurate that people can, and this is the scenario, not the passage, could neglect or hold off getting a relationship with God in order? They were given an opportunity to be saved. They never took advantage of it. The time of judgment came. They ultimately missed out and were condemned. Yes, that is an accurate potential scenario. Is that the point of this parable? No. The parable itself explains what its point was. So, yeah. Well, uh, to read the parable, uh, first of all, we have to understand where it fits into the flow and the context. Jesus is uh, giving his uh, Olivet Discourse, as it's known, given on the Mount of Olives. He is answering key questions about the future, the immediate future of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, he's told his disciples not one stone will be left upon another, all will be torn down. Uh, and uh, they've asked him, when will these things be and what will be the sign of uh, your return? So Jesus, again, in Matthew chapter 24, gives a series of from here to eternity predictions. And we talk quite a bit about the birth pains and, and so on. Uh, we talk about the fact that uh, Israel is going to find itself in a place with a rebuilt temple where an abomination that causes desolation is going to happen. That is, the Antichrist is going to set himself up as God to be worshipped. Uh, the people of Israel are worried, are uh, warned at that time. Uh, to uh, flee for the hills, not even go down into your house and get anything. Just get out of Dodge because, uh, again, there was going to be incredible persecution that was going to happen to the Jewish people and devastation globally. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say, unless those days are shortened, no flesh would survive. So we're not just talking about, say, the destruction of the temple in AD 70. It literally goes from there to eternity, to the actual return of Jesus Christ. So uh, Jesus lays all these things out. He talks about how when he returns, every eye is going to see him and, uh, and that the people will mourn. Uh, he will send his angels with the sound of a great trumpet. They will gather together as elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. He then goes on to emphasize that no man knows the day or the hour and uh, that the wise person is the one who lives as if his Lord could come back at any time. The foolish person is the one who does not. He says it's going to be like the days of Noah and like the days of Lot. It's going to be seemingly business as usual until God's people are provided for, taken out of harm's way, then judgment is going to fall. Then he drives home the point with two successive parables that he lays out. The parable of the wise and foolish virgins, uh, the ones that uh, were wise, uh, were invited and uh, prepared to be a part of a wedding feast, not knowing exactly when 
the uh, bride would come or the groom would come for his bride, but uh, prepared to be able to enter into all of this. The others were like, oh, well, you know, we'll get around to it later some other time. They just didn't really demonstrate a whole lot of passion or preparation. And so they found themselves without even the, uh, the basics of that culture's uh, understanding of respect and relationship with the bridegroom. And uh, again, Jesus culminates that by saying, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. That was a parable because the culture would have a tremendous impact upon people. Like you said, Sean, sometimes we get into trouble with parables because we start trying to pick them apart and why, you know, were there five wise and why five foolish and why the number five and, and uh, you know, so on. Or, and, What's the oil represent? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the main point is be ready because you don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, how can you be ready? Well, that's the point of the parable of the talents. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. Now, notice whose goods they are. They're the fellow who's the head of the household. They're not the goods of the servants. The first he gave five talents to another two and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then when he'd the one who had received uh, five talents went and traded with him and made another five talents. And likewise, he received two, two more also. When he received one, went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you've delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained you five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. The famous words, you were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He who received the two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter the joy of your Lord. Now notice repeated there is this idea of entering into the joy of your Lord. A relationship is definitely in view here. But... The, then he, the one who received the one talent said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. In other words, uh, I'm complaining about all of this because, uh, you know, I've had to do all the heavy lifting here. It doesn't really mention it's the Lord's money that he was dealing with here. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I've not sown and gathered where I've not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, uh, Sean, getting back to the notion here that there's one point to a parable, and we've seen this prophetic panorama brought forth, this from here to eternity view of the Lord coming back, him reminding people, you know, watch for your Lord, you don't know what hour your Lord's uh, coming back, uh, even the uh, parable of the ten virgins, the main point of the parable is to be watchful, prepared, and waiting. Now, this parable of the talents then tells us that waiting 
for the Lord, this is the main point of the parable, is not some passive mystical state, correct? No, it's something that you have the opportunity to do, to consciously do, and to participate in that expectation of, and you'll even receive heavenly rewards for on a moment-by-moment basis, something that will be said of at the end of your life, whether what kind of impact it had or not. But the idea behind this is to take into consideration not just the themes, the setup, but as in any poetic structure of a parable would be, what's the lesson? We don't look at the significance of the tortoise and the hare and ask, well, why was it significant that the hare took so many naps? No, what was the point? Yeah. And it's told to you. <laughs> so that's yeah. the point. Yeah. And, and, you know, once again, the main point of all of this is that waiting for the return of Jesus, one of the main criticisms of churches that tend to lay great stress on predictive prophecy uh, like Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, where, uh, where we fellowship, is that, oh, you know, prophecy, biblical prophecy, is just not practical. Well, when someone says that, they tell me they don't really understand uh, the essence of what biblical prophecy is all about. In the book of Titus, uh, chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, we are told, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. What is true about an individual that is constantly looking for the return of Jesus? They're interested in working on their heart. They are interested in living a life that pleases God in very practical, tangible and measurable ways. They're interested in growth in their walk with God. They're interested in bearing fruit. In essence, being able to come to your master when he comes and have more to show for the experience than just, well, I made it, uh, you know, and I guess I didn't deny you, Lord, so here I am. Mm -hmm. First Corinthians chapter 3 talks about the idea of rewards and that uh, those that don't build on the foundation of faith that we have in Jesus. Uh, are going to suffer loss. They'll be saved as through the flames, but uh, they're going to suffer loss in terms of being able to enter into worship and receive eternal rewards in a heavenly sense. So the, the parable of the talents shows us, if we're going to uh, bring it down to uh, just one main point without kind of dissecting, well, why the five and the two and you know, why the thing about the interest and all that. The, the, the main point of the parable is this. If your master is gone and he has given you stewardship, be faithful. Be faithful, and when he returns, you'll enter into the joy of your Lord. You won't look at Jesus' return as something to dread. I had a friend give me a bumper sticker that said, Jesus is coming soon, look busy. Uh, that, that's not going to be your attitude at all. Uh, you're going to look for the return of Jesus like well-loved children waiting for the sound of uh, that garage door to go up at the end of the day, showing that a beloved parent's mm. come home. So that's the main point of the parable of the talents. Mm, great. Thanks, Mike, for that. Thanks for hanging in there with your question. Glad we got to it today. Question from Ina. Are we allowed to pray for those who have died, or are we just to leave them in God's hands? What a great question. 
Pray for people that died. I guess we'd need clarification on in what sense are you praying for them about. The general caution that people would have against it is in 1 John chapter 5, where the sin leading unto death, if they had committed a sin in their life where God had to directly intervene, judge them, and it resulted in them physically dying, there's no point in praying for them and saying, God, restore them from what they brought on themselves, yeah. that they are now physically dead, or bring them back to life so that they can go on and live. Now, God dealt with them, yeah. and that would be something that Scripture would directly denote. Right. I did not say that he should pray about that. Yeah. They're physically in his presence, they're standing in judgment. Yeah. Let that be There's a lot of theology in this, isn't there, and what, you know, what is dead, and can we be brought back, and can we communicate? It's a really big question. Yeah, yeah. but the whole concern about, you know, can I just pray uh, about them? Saying, God, let's don't let me forget uh, all the lessons they taught me or something. Mentioning them in prayers, I don't think is wrong. There's not a negative example of that in Scripture. Where we get into problem territory is not when we pray to quote the Dawagandist Muhammad Hijab for our loved ones, but to our loved ones. Mm. The problem with that, of course, is that's there's no other way to put it, necromancy. Uh, the prayers to saints, the traditions that are centered around looking for intermediators and interceders, you know, my dear sainted grandma and stuff, first of all, even according to Catholic and Orthodox dogma, they wouldn't say that they're an appropriate audience of your prayers unless they've been deemed saints by the Roman Catholic Church, which isn't what that means. The second problem with that, of course, is that Scripture says as plainly as possibly could be said, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So if we're going to say, you know, I don't want to pray to God, I'm not worthy to be in his presence, and this whole false humility that they'll put on, I'd rather designate that to someone who I have a close relationship, or someone I respect, or someone who's garnering the sort of attention that belongs only to God in my life. I'll use this idol to somehow make my prayers more acceptable to God, and they'll both be slapping their foreheads in heaven. So the point being made is this. There's a line between the audience of your prayer and the subject of your prayer. What subject are you praying for them about? And of course, if you understand the difference, there wouldn't really be any need. The whole idea of them being with the Lord means that you don't really have to worry about them anymore. They're yep. fine. If they died as an unbeliever, or at least you don't know what was words were exchanged before that final moment of accountability came due, you can trust a la Genesis 18, that the judge of all the earth would do what is right, but even then they're not the object of your prayer. Mm -hmm. So to avoid idolatry, to avoid paganism, to avoid the cults and heresies that have been put forward in the name of Christ over the years apart from Scripture, it's better to understand you're praying for people that are still on the same material plane that you are. Yeah. If they're with the Lord, they're either in good hands or they're in good hands, either way. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, and once again, uh, there are groups that say that you can pray for your loved ones. Uh, you know, my uh, step-grandfather passed away, and uh, we went to a uh, full uh, requiem mass for him, and the uh, priest conducting it said that uh, by praying these prayers, we can actually help uh, George to, on his journey to heaven. Mm. Uh, and so the idea that somehow you can benefit or change the eternal state, yeah. if you will, of a loved one is something that uh, I can see that some people would 
probably find comfort in, yep. but it's something the Scripture absolutely forbids. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, we are told it is, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment, uh, that there is no second chance given to people uh, after heaven or a way station where if you didn't quite get things right, you can right. burn things off and yeah. make yourself presentable Purgatory. in a few billion years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. great. Well, thank you. Uh, appreciate that question from uh, Ina. Hope that helps you out with that. Such a great question. A uh, question from Bob. In Proverbs uh, 1, 20 through 33, wisdom is personified as a woman. Is there any cultural or biblical reason for this, other than women being more, you know, wise than men anyway? But apart from that, is there anything biblical? Well, actually, it's <laughs> a little bit more straightforward. You're almost on the nose, Dave. When we're talking about, and this is repeated again later in Proverbs as well, a contrast of parables, but, or personifications rather, between foolishness being described as a loose woman trying to get the attention of men crossing on the street, I believe it's in Proverbs 8, and then a another woman by the city gates also offering to have the attention of anyone who will listen to her being described as wisdom, and these two are in contrast to each other. What's interesting about the contrast is that the woman who is identified as wisdom offers wine and meat, while the foolish woman offers stolen bread and water. And obviously there's meant to be a lesser and greater comparison there. But the point being made is this. When we read the Proverbs, especially the opening chapters of Proverbs, there's a decided, immediate historical audience that they have in mind. Solomon is speaking to his son. Now, whether it was Rehoboam, his successor specifically, or just his sons in general, maybe his students, his sons of knowledge, all of these people were dudes because that's generally what sons are referring to. Mm -hmm. And since they were in reference to younger than him, we could understand they are also the kind of people who, like anyone else at an age younger than married, would hear the word woman and perk up. They would hear a woman that's interested in talking to you perk up even more. Say a woman with lots of money and free food, need I say more? point was to make this as appealing and relatable to a primary historically male audience as possible, and nothing's mm. going to get the attention to make it applicable or interesting to a male audience than the fact that a girl wants to talk to you and has some treats for you as well. <laughs> but it's also contrasted with another girl that's trying to get your attention but doesn't actually have something worthwhile to offer, just says it's better. So this is the point. If you're talking about these passages, first of all, understand the genre. This is poetic scripture. These are wise sayings that are usually divided into four categories, contrast, couplets, personifications, and parables. This personification is appropriate given the historical audience it was intended for, that is, a father speaking to his son, and generally, I'm not an expert on biology, but I think a son is generally younger than his father. You can make that reference. The idea was to say, okay, uh, Sean, uh, I know you don't like this Bible stuff right now. You remember in like Pokemon or the Warhammers or any of the others? Oh, got my, that's the point of the passage. It's to make it accessible and interesting to his audience. Right. Now, if you're a girl and you're saying, oh, so wisdom literature is not for me, you can do the math, you're smarter than that. But the idea is meant for the audience, my son, 
which is actually in the passage. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, the other thing that I think is really interesting about this is in Proverbs eight, uh, wisdom is personified as uh, being female. It says, uh, "Does not wisdom cry out, and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill." by the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates, the entry of the cities. Uh, to you, O man, I call, and my voice is the sons of men. O you simple ones, understand prudence, and fools be of an understanding heart. It goes on. Well, um, there's kind of a safeguard here built into wisdom being personified as a woman. Sean, you accurately pointed out that that was something that would tend to make this more real and tangible to the intended audience. And let's face it, uh, the decisions that you make as far as uh, who you're going to spend the rest of your life with as far as your spouse, that's a biggie. Uh, so, you know, we can, we can see uh, the practical reasons behind all of this. But there's another safeguard here that sometimes gets brought up by cultists. Uh, sometimes uh, cultists will try to say that uh, Jesus wasn't God in the same sense that God the Father is, that he was a created being. And they will point to Proverbs chapter 8, and they will say, uh, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his ways, before his works of old. I've been established from everlasting, from the beginning before there was ever an earth, when there was no depths was I brought forth, when there was no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle in the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, uh, and so on. There I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily in his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. Uh, so, you know, they will say, well, see, uh, this is Jesus here being embodied as uh, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3 says, in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So this is Jesus, and you see Jesus was a created being. He was brought forth, you see. But the problem is the pronouns, everybody's big on pronouns these days, but in this case pronouns are helpful, just don't match because the person speaking here is female. And we know that Jesus is the son of God, that he is male. So, And the uh, genre is poetry. Right, <laughs> right. So once again, uh, there are those who will say, well, see, it says right here that, uh, you know, that, that Jesus came into existence. He was brought forth. No, wisdom, uh, as far as being manifested here on earth, was brought forth uh, at that time and was part and parcel of the creative process. This is not deifying wisdom. Uh, some feminists will even go so far as to say that there should be a fourth member of the Trinity because of this Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and wisdom. But that's not what this is teaching. Oh. And even if we were to grant that wisdom is a representation of Jesus in this passage, are you saying that God made wisdom at a point in time as a part of his nature and wasn't always a part of him? There was a time that God was foolish, devoid of wisdom. It doesn't match. But if, on the other hand, you allow the genre to actually bear an authority on how you interpret it, this isn't speaking of an entity, this is speaking of a concept in a way that a young man would perk up at. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think any man would perk up if an attractive woman wanted his attention and had snacks, but that's just my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you had me at snacks. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Bob, thank you. I hope that helps you out. Thanks for your question and being with us. A uh, question from the uh, Abietta family. Do you know where in the Quran Jesus being uh, was uh, born of a virgin, died and rose again. We do clown ministry and are performing for Muslims and Christian teens 
and families this weekend. Any advice? That's pretty awesome. Clown Ministry. Yeah, I know who they're talking about. Um, the Quran has uh, some interesting things to say about the virgin birth. Uh, as far as uh, polemic or an offense against Christianity, the way that they account it is kind of vulgar, but no Muslim worth their hummus is going to deny that Jesus was born of a virgin. Let me just give a few passages without getting too much more into it. This is Sarah 2191, uh, speaking of Mary. Remember her who guarded her. The Arabic word is vulgar, but it's referring to her private parts. Uh, we breathed into her form our spirit and made her and her son a sign for all people. Uh, the next passage would be Surah 66 and verse 12. Mary, the daughter of Imran, that's a historical heir, uh, who guarded her private parts. We breathe into it of our spirit. She testified to the truth of the words of her Lord and her revelations as one of the devout servants. So a little praises for Mary. And then in Surah 23, 1 through 2, it notes that prosperous are the believers whose prayers are humble and who guard their private parts. Um, again, if you're an Arabic speaker, this is going to be vulgar, but the word is farj. It would be the equivalent in the English language of the P word to describe a woman's sexual organ. It's intentionally vulgar, but it's a graphic note of Allah's spiritual intervention in causing Mary to get pregnant without sexual intercourse. So that would be an affirmation of the virgin birth. Uh, 2191, 6612, 23, 1 through 5. Those are the main passages. But the second, or rather first part of your question, about the Jesus dying and rising from the dead, that's a big, big one. Uh, this is in Surah 19, or Surah Al-Miriam, verse 33. Uh, this is, you'll find out in a second who's speaking. Peace be on me the day I was born, the day I die, and the day I am raised alive. This is Isa, son of Mary, the saying of truth about which they doubt. Now you may think about that and note, well, as we discussed yesterday, don't Muslims deny that Jesus died and rose from the grave? Is confirmation of deity. So why is the Quran doing that? Exactly, that's the problem. So when we're talking about Jesus being killed, Jesus being raised from the dead, and of course Jesus having a supernatural birth, and the only one in history to do so, by the way. There's notes in the Quran about why was Jesus conceived by a virgin birth, and Allah just says, well, it's part of my power. I just say, be, and it is. That's usually how a Muslim's trained to respond. But the problem, again, with that is that you have to ask its purpose. If Jesus was to have this unique birth apart from anyone else in history, and you just say, well, it was just God showing off, then there was no purpose. You're diminishing the severity, the nature of Jesus' birth, and the Muslim would be one of those in the nations that the Quran itself says you rejected our signs. Mm. But in noting this as a sign that the Quran itself affirms, which once again, Surah 19, verse 33, Surah Al-Miriam, it notes that he was born, that he dies, and that he will be raised from the dead. The technical response from Muslims is that, well, this is speaking of the judgment of the resurrection. But once again, you have to hold their feet to the fire on this and say, what does your Quran actually say? It says that he was never killed according to, again, the past we discussed yesterday, Surah 4157, that he was taken up to Allah. So how is he going to physically die? And then they'll 
commit the sin of innovation by saying, well, what it's saying is that Jesus is going to you know, come back down from heaven, you know, the Islamic end times deal. He'll wage jihad on the Christians. He'll kill them all or subjugate them. He'll take away the jizya so we don't have any means of being subjugated under extortion, I think the crime would be called, the jizya tax, which is protection money. And then um, when he's done murdering all the Christians, he'll rule for a time, and then he'll physically die, and then at the final judgment, Allah will raise him alive. Now, if you haven't called the cops yet, the idea behind that is, of course, improving upon what Allah has actually plainly said. If they claim to even respect their own literature, you have to say, where is that? Ayah and Surah, chapter and verse. Where is that in your actual revelations? Are you reading into the text because it's unclear, despite its repeated claims that it is? Or do you have to contend with something here because the author of the Quran can't keep his story straight? Was Jesus never killed? Will Jesus die and be raised from the dead? When he was speaking to a primary Hebrew audience, why is it that he suddenly gets all defensive when he's talking to people who know their scriptures, but is boasting about how the Christians and Jews support him as a prophet when he's speaking to a pagan audience that doesn't know better? Why is it that in the Quran, after the Jews reject him, he's exclusively appealing to the Christians until he has an army and suddenly Christians are the number one target? Is this adjusting with Muhammad's political ambitions and goals, or whoever was trying to use this at the time? The point being made is just that. Surah 19, 33-34 is where you go to note Jesus dying and rising from the dead. But Muslims are going to be in a corner on that. So if you want a more pleasant conversation, I wouldn't bring it up unless they do it first. Then you can hang them on it. Mm-hmm. If on the other hand, you're going to go to Surah 2191 and noting Mary being a virgin when Allah breathed his spirit into her, which is another proof text of the Trinity. We'll talk about another time if you'd like. That's generally where you'd want to go in noting the virgin birth. But most Muslims just go off of what their imams tell them, and that would include that. So no need to argue or make them open their book unless it's to drive home the point. You believe that about Jesus. Where is that in your Quran? And they're not going to know because they're not taught to form doctrine from their Quran. All it is to them is Baraka and Bidda, the good deeds and the bad deeds that the shoulder angel and the shoulder demon have like on to. the Flintstones. Yeah, or uh, yeah. Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and to ultimately account for it on Judgment Day in mm-hmm. a blatant ripoff of the pagan view of judgment. The point being made, though, is just that. When we're talking to Muslims, we're not talking to people who know their book. They're taught to just say that their book has all the answers. When you tell them to show the answers from their book, they're not going to have it in their book. They're going to say, well, Allah knows best. They're going to trust their leaders. If you're going to talk to a Muslim audience, then just pick one topic. And if in the case of this, it's referring to the virgin birth, the best way to approach that in a way that ties it back to the gospel, or even better yet, the resurrection is, why does the Quran talk about this? And what are the implications with other passages? Hopefully, you'll encounter someone like Nabil Qureshi, who himself was asked these difficult questions and didn't go to sleep the nights he had to think it through, because he loved his God and he loved the truth more than he loved just affiliation with his family. The fact it took several years showed that he loved his family very much, but the kind of person who would read the Quran objectively does not remain a Muslim. But the person who just believes the Quran, because that's what you do, either under fear of being beaten and exiled from your family, or under penalty of death in Muslim lands, or in nations where they know that they're not going to be punished for it. That's the foundation of Islam. 
imams and sheikhs and clerks have literally said in the open, if it weren't for the death penalty for apostates, Islam would not have survived. But if we're talking to people about the gospel, Muslim, atheist, Hindu, or whoever, make sure that the conversation comes back to the person of Jesus, and Muslims, unfortunately, have put a lot in our ball court as far as what we can use. They affirm Jesus' virgin birth, that they don't understand its significance. They affirm Jesus' death and resurrection, but then have to deny it due to later passages. They affirm that Jesus was historically claimed to be crucified, but then throughout all of history in favor of Muhammad's hatred of the Hebrew people being Christ killers, quote-unquote. They would affirm so many things about God that we Christians would also believe, except for the most fundamental truths about who God is, that he's a trinity, that he died and rose from the dead in a moment of history, and that it's through Jesus we have eternal life. They would throw all these out. But if you can hold them to that, and note that the Quran isn't even consistent on these points, that later Muslims have realized, uh-oh, we're actually talking to Christians who know what their beliefs are now, and we have to reconcile these things, get them off of their scripts, the same with any cult group, and make them think through what's actually in the text, and then you won't, uh, well, hopefully have a negative conversation, but you'll have something the Holy Spirit can hopefully use to get them to ask further questions. If they walk away, that's between them and the Lord. But if they keep listening, make sure that you let them know. You're not doing this because you hate them or their religion or their community. You love them and want them to know the truth. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm, I encourage all of you to read the Quran, to study and know what they believe as well. Because if they understand that you care more about their religion than they do, that'll encourage them to look at the sort of things that we can ultimately use, the Spirit can hopefully use to lead them back to Christ. Mm. Amen to that. Uh, right on. Yeah, and we'll be praying for a fruitful ministry for you this this weekend. Sounds very exciting what you do. Thank you for your questions today. If you stick around in half an hour, we're going to be going live with the book of Ezekiel. We're going to wrap it up. I think we are. Wow. One of the most significant passages in the entire book, if not the entire Old Testament. Yeah. Wow. We're finishing up tonight. Uh, Tune in or come on down if you're in Tucson. If not, we'll see you again same time, same place tomorrow. God bless. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.